0: Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 116. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and wow, I think we just got a really fantastic episode for you this week. We've got the creators of the all-star improv comedy... Off-Broadway, Don't Quit Your Night Job. We also have a backstage exclusive pass talking to all of the stars of High Fidelity as they recorded the cast album for High Fidelity, which just came out in Chickaboom Records. We're also going to hear from Rosebud, a one-person show about Orson Welles. And I tell you what, we find out a lot more about that man's career in addition to this great show. And the first transfer from a Utah theater company Facing East tackles the difficult subjects of homosexuality and the Mormon Church and uh, we got a great discussion on it going on right here in addition we've got On the Positive Side Top of the Trades as usual and a whole bunch of stuff so uh, let's just jump into the program
2: On the Boards
0: I think every young actor or person pursuing the performing arts has heard the statement don't quit your day job well uh for people who've already made it in acting, they've got a new show to participate in called Don't Quit Your Night Job.
1: <laughs> Woo! Yeah!
0: <laughs> and we have two of the creators, Steve Rosen and David Rossmer, Hello. here with us to discuss the show. How are you guys doing? Good. How, are you? How are you? Thank you for inviting us. Now, this is improv extraordinary. I, I should clarify, most improv shows, I think, are made up of a core troupe. Right. And you're a core troupe with a bunch of new people invited every night yeah we've
3: got an amazing group of uh, 29 actors uh from all over the new york theater scene who rotate in and out of our show every show we've got a different different seven improvisers who are there uh so you're guaranteed never to see the same cast twice which is cool we've got amazing actors and uh we're just having a ball now where did this idea come about it's like a drug-induced state, uh, mostly LSD. I think it was. Yeah, right. I tried it for the first time, and next thing I knew, we were it was at like the improv- improvise. Yeah, uh, actually, David and I, uh, we met actually doing an improvisation at theater summer camp. We were at a camp called French Woods upstate when we were. It must have been like twelve or thirteen, and we were actually uh, <laughs> in an improv class. And uh, we hadn't really met each other at all, and we did something that cracked each other up. They in- were, like, telling a story, and we had to act out the story.
4: And they were like, Bill and Bob go into a bar. And so we walk into a... Bill and Bob do this, and finally it was Bill spills his drink on Bob. And since neither of us knew who Bill or Bob was, both of us at the same time just sort of spilled their drinks on each other. And that was sort of instant
3: friendship. And uh, we made each other laugh from then until, like... 12 years later. And the show kind of came about, um, we had been sort of toying with the idea of doing some sort of improv thing uh, for a long time. And then uh, Sarah Salzberg, one of our collaborators, uh, uh, and uh, Dan Lipton is the other person who runs the show with us. Um, We were given this sort of opportunity down at Joe's Pub down in the village in June of last year to basically, we were given an evening. They were starting late night programming there and they gave us the opportunity to do a show at like 11.30 at night on a Thursday. Uh, and so we were like, well, let's, let's try out something new. Well, we had always wanted to do an improv show for a long time. I'm not disagreeing with you, David. I think you were (laughs) just a little disagreeing. Well, okay, maybe a little. We Okay, for a long time we'd wanted to. And we actually met Sarah doing, you
4: know, Upright Citizens Brigade? That's sort of the improv, they have a, there's a big improv staple in the city. And so the two of us wanted to sort of brush up on our own skills, so we took a class that anyone could take. You know, you could be a... Uh, office person, you could be anybody, you know, people were given this as a gift, and so that's where we met Sarah, and then it was like a year later or something, we found out she was in Spelling
3: Bee, yeah, it was so surreal. I went and I saw Spelling Bee at second stage, and as I'm watching it, I'm like, that girl is so familiar to me, but she, her hair was all done up in the braids, and she was talking in a lisp, and then after the show, I, w- I kind of waited until she came out, I was just like, I don't know if you remember me, but you, me, Dave Rosmer, and a bunch of accountants took an improv class together, uh, and, uh, and that was sort of the beginning of a beautiful
0: friendship and collaboration. So how did it evolve from going from once a month down at Joe's pub to you're going now going every night at eleven A.M. at the Ha comedy club?
3: Oh I hope it's not eleven AM. I mean sorry, eleven
0: PM. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god.
3: We're missing it right now. It's like uh it's like theaterworks, going back to theaterworks USA, getting up for the ten A.m. show. Um, we, uh, we should we should do a ten o'clock mad name. Don't quit your night job. The school show. <laughs> yeah, the school show. It's all yeah. All spelling bee cast and uh, Grinch stole Christmas. Um, that is really random. Um, we uh, we sort of hooked up with uh, uh, a producer named Jed Bernstein who came and saw the show downtown and really liked it. Uh, it was kind of his idea, I think. He so, was the one who said this could be a show. Yeah, yeah. We, we didn't approach him. He came to us uh, because every month we would have basically – we would invite a bunch of our friends and uh, actors who we really liked who we had specific ideas for because the show isn't exclusively improv. Like we'll have musical guests and we have segments that we've written into the show. Uh, there's one, Stars of Tomorrow, where we use a little kid uh, – to play a really old character in something with a bunch of other adults. Um, And I think that the idea of... And it was a a bunch of other actors coming to see us, because that's who sort of knew about it, and that's who was up at 11.30 on a Thursday night, was all the other actors from Broadway shows. Um, And so I think he sort of saw that environment and saw the playfulness of it and thought that there was potential to do it a lot more often. And... We sort of full-heartedly said, Yeah, that, that should be easy. Little do we know. It's really hard, but we are having the time of our life. It's just it's amazing to get to play every night and I get to hang out with David and Sarah and Dan, my friends and you know, and, and play. It's great.
0: Yes. Now, we're besides friends. the revolving cast you said of like twenty nine people who filter in and out, you you advertise that you have a special celebrity guest each night. Yes, I, I'm at curious what some of the most interesting stories so far involving some of your celebrity guests—mess up, screw ups, crazy stories. What's well, the the show is sort
4: of based on screwing up. I mean, it is a hearty blend of off the cuff humor and planned stuff. So um, we mix. We're doing improvs at one point, which are totally people will jump in at all times. I mean, that's completely made up on the spot Uh, and like the other night we had Tova Felche come out I think she came out because she thought it was a different yeah, she uh, thought game. She, she
3: thought it was overactor symphony Yeah, she thought
4: it was this overactor sympathy. Sim- sympathy. I have sympathy for the for, overactor. Yeah, it's, it's a hearty <laughs> blend. Uh, yeah, and she came out and and suddenly she somehow went from thinking she was doing this overactor symphony to becoming like this crawfish. crawfish. Yeah, she became a crawfish, and it was actually one of the coolest moments we've had at the show, watching
3: Tova Felcha on the ground, sort of curled up like a fetal crawfish. Um, And and it was it was in a musical and uh, and all of a sudden they put the mic in her face and they said crawfish what is your name and she says Uh, my uh, name is uh, Golda in my ears yeah Uh, yeah, we've had some amazing uh, guests you know uh, summer uh, I'm trying to think of anything that oh Mark Summers Mark Summers we had
4: Mark Summers of Double Dare fame do a a skit uh, Double Dare the musical and unwrap the musical. We really took him that task. he
3: also—I mean, a lot of these people have got these skills that we don't know about. Mark Summers also started his career— as a magician, and so he yeah. had like a stage magic act that he's done there. I think we've had some. We, had, we have Nicole Parker from MAD TV. She's phenomenal. Yeah, Mo Rocca. Uh, Mo Rocca just came to the show the other the other afternoon to sort of last minute. He just shows up, up at the show and we throw him in. And, and that's sort of the environment. It's it's whoever shows up and wants to play basically gets thrown into the game. I thought Patrick Wilson was one of the funniest guys. He, he really is him. hilarious. And you don't you don't think about Patrick. You think of him as being a good looking leading man, and then all of a sudden there he is and. Uh, Uh, we played the celebrity press conference game I don't know if you remember this from when you saw it but what happens is we get uh, uh, an actor on stage and we it's a press conference and it's a celebrity in town to promote a famous Broadway show except the person who's having the press conference doesn't know who they are or what show they're in.
0: Yes, and, uh, the night I saw Bruce Valanche was Carol Channing in Color Purple. Oh, right. Oh, good. Right. <laughs> Which Obviously should happen, I
3: think. It should. She's going in in a couple of weeks. Fantasia can't keep this up for long. Um, but it was, uh, I think he was David Hasselhoff, I think, in Fiddler on the Roof. That sounds too plausible. Uh, yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> no, but we said it in Germany to make it really plausible. Yes, it was, it was a German production. Um, and who Sutton Foster has been such a great friend of the show, and and, uh, and yeah, we're just you know, it's our friends. You know, people that we've worked with and love working with. And new with.
4: people, too, who, you know, we, we get to meet as well. It's a lot of fun to meet some new people in that environment. Because it's not like they're coming to a talk show. It's not like they're coming out to sort of talk about what they're doing or plug. They get to actually do things that they wouldn't get to do anywhere else. And the audience gets to watch them do things that they wouldn't see them do anywhere else. Um, you know, last night we had John Bolton, who's one of the funniest comedians working in Broadway today, he's in curtains, come and sing. He sings, oh, we have special skills segment of our show, which we, which we sort of parody the bottom of every actor's resume where they have special skills, and we have them do these ridiculous things we found on the bottom of their resume. So John Bolton sings Oklahoma in three different languages, and he's singing it in Japanese and Italian and German. And German, German, and it's just, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Like, it really stems from myself and Steve and Dan and Sarah's just bizarre ...sense of humor and also a real fun and affectionate uh, view of the theater world today. And it's fun and people enjoy poking fun at themselves and being able to laugh at themselves and play with each other. There's a real sense of community and the audience feels a part of that. A way they never could going to see a Broadway show where they're not yelling out suggestions for what to do. So um, it, when it, at its best, it's everyone working together, the audience, us on stage... And um, and it's it's just like it's like a party, you know. It's like an after theater party.
0: Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, you know, most improv shows are formed of a core group. And, are you and getting mad
4: that we didn't answer your question? That we totally <laughs> no 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 no. no.
0: I'm, I didn't. It wasn't a question. Then now it objection, is. objection, y'all. Such a jerk. Now it's a question, and that is, how do you rehearse such a thing, and keep the the games tight, and everybody kind of knowing the rules of the improv when you've got twenty nine people coming in at any given time. That's a a good question. Um,
3: We we have a, a, a weekly rehearsal where basically everybody who's going to be appearing in the next week's shows comes in and learns the games that we're going to be playing the following week. And it has been described by some of the actors as as close to college as they've been in a long time, uh, where they come in and basically we just throw up groups of people, we tell them how the game works. Sometimes we have a a basic idea of what the game is, and we sort of learn it in a very collaborative environment. So the people jump up on stage, and we sort of tweak the games as people are playing them, saying you know, this works a little bit better. Maybe we should, instead of getting just a location, maybe we should also get the name of a specific language or a culture to filter that through. Yeah, I mean, most improv troupes are... Of that core, so we wanted to do something different.
4: We wanted to give people the experience, um, sort of an like an addendum to going to see a Broadway show, where they can now see these people playing around, and most of them are some of the funniest improvisers I've ever seen. And Steve and I have gone and seen other these improv shows you're talking about, and um, we are. Doubly impressed with our cast after we see them because they, they to me, they're the funniest improvisers I've, I've seen. And the fact that they can always mix and match and play with new people, like, there's an energy that you don't find when you're working with one troop of people. And it's helpful, they sort of can feel each other out better, they work with each other on a more consistent basis. But there's a freshness to it at Don't Quit that you don't necessarily find there. And so we actually love the fact that we have. Um, such a large group of people who are always changing. And in those rehearsals, we find that the games grow, and we what Steve is saying is we learn new things about them and we experiment with them in different ways because everyone adds their own color to the games. So one week we might play it one way, and the second week we might play it a different way depending on who we have. And uh, it's like an embarrassment of riches when it comes to that. It is. And
3: uh, one of the games that we play, I don't know if you I'm remember. I'm embarrassed. Are you embarrassed? Yeah. Well, you're blushing. Thank you. That's okay. Do you want a, you need a moment? No, no, no. I'm okay. Okay. If you need anything, just let me know. I'm Thank here you. for you. I appreciate it. Um, one of the games we play is called New York 2. I, I, I don't know if you remember this, but it's sort of based on uh, on that show on New York, the theater criticism show they have every <laughs> week on New York 1. And it's uh, we review three uh, shows, two musicals and a play. Uh, talking about the embarrassment of riches is usually if you go to an improv show and people have to start singing but it's people making up funny songs who've got these incredibly legit voices all of a sudden will chase who you know or charlie pollock or jen colella have got these amazing voices i don't mean to single out any of our cast because they're all amazing singers but uh all of a sudden are making up songs and belting high a's and b's you know
0: um well really- that i was there it was the guy from from the practice Oh, Jason, Jason Kravitz. Kravitz. Yeah, yeah he, he didn't have the great voice, but it was like he was actually writing an honest god musical on the spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like going, my God, lyrically, this guy is improvising like, well-crafted. Yeah. When it's like,
4: right, when, it's, <laughs> when it works, it's like step one, you're giggling. Step two, you're laughing. Step three, you're sort of in awe. And step four, you're going, I sort of want to see this full musical.
3: I sort of want to see the whole thing because it's better than a lot of the stuff I've seen. Um, and, and step five, it's, I ordered a vodka tonic and yeah. this is definitely gin. Yeah.
0: So with rounding up all these guests, uh, whose job is that? And have you come up short one night? Have you had too many people one night? Well, you know, I think the fun of the show is you never know
3: who's going to show up. You know, we've had uh, casting people working on it. We've called our friends in. Uh, Our producer calls in his friends. I think the general idea is... (laughs) There was
4: that embarrassing day where Bill Clinton showed up. We had to turn him away. We did. He He really wanted to do a Mad Mad Lib.
3: Yeah, he was
4: upset. But you know what? (laughs) We had a... we had some other people We already there, had Newt right? Gingrich we had Hunter on that Foster, day. yeah. It was, it was <laughs> rough.
3: Um, but he'll come back. Uh, yeah, some nights, you know, some nights we, we are packed to the gills uh, with people. And other nights, you know, we, we have less of the special guest element. But the cast is strong enough as it is that uh, no matter who's there, you, you're going to be entertained. All right. So this is at the Ha Comedy Club. Right, Ooh. on 46th Street. It's the former Laser Tag Park. I don't know if you remember below the Equity Building used to be a laser tag parlor. And Laser, laser
0: tag parlor. Parlor. <laughs> well, That's it's why it's so big. The parlor. lobby is huge. You can't yes. find your room because you're wandering around lost in totally. this dungeon. And go... <laughs> L- Absolutely. <laughs> Late at night the With a everyone's... sign going, constantly going in the bathroom that way. Just exactly. The bathroom
4: and the... <laughs> it's a big, cruel joke. It's like Dante's Ninth Circle of Hell. It's like. Godot was in the bathroom. Yeah. He was there. He will never find it. We just pee on the floor.
0: Well I thank you guys for coming down. It's bright definitely bright and early for you after how late the show goes. <laughs> it's all good, thank you. And best of luck with the run. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Chickaboom and Ghostlight Records invited me behind the scenes to the recording sessions for High Fidelity the musical. And now that the show is out on CD as of last week, we got a treat for you with interviews with tons of the people involved in the production, lots of snippets from the CD, and even two full songs from the soundtrack. The CD is available now on Ghostlight at Amazon and iTunes.
1: For the serious collectors I'm
0: talking with composer Tom Kitt. Hello. <laughs> How <are>
5: you doing? <laughs> I'm great, thank you. Is this a busy day for you here? Yes, it's a, it's it's a wonderful day. It's nice to be back with the uh, with the score and the cast and and uh, the family of High Fidelity. But, now, this is all being recorded in one day straight, right? Yes, one day, and then we'll uh, edit and mix uh, next week, and the
0: coming weeks. So uh, how crazy is that, getting all the musicians on key and making sure they're all on point together? I mean, you, you, they perform the show tonight every night correctly, so how yeah. how different is it for them coming in?
5: Um, I, I, well, certainly because they haven't played it in about a month or, or so. It's it's, uh, you know, it's amazing how much they've retained and how quickly they, they get right back into it. So um, I'm, I'm actually pretty in awe of everybody who just comes in and, and nails it in a few takes. It's uh, it's it's pretty mind blowing. <laughs> so you having fun singing behind the booth? I love it. I love uh, you know. It's it's great that we get to document the show and and um, and hear all the music again and and, and the voices and and uh, it's just an incredible group of people. So it's uh, it's thrilling to be back. So what were what are some of your favorite musicals that didn't run very long? <laughs> some of my favorite musicals that didn't run very long. Wow. Um, well, uh, you know, it's it's hard to say because I haven't necessarily always been a uh, you know the type of of fan of musical theater that gets to shows in in a week and a half. So not in you know I just haven't seen that many. But certainly some you know the Sondheim scores that, that you know like Merrily We Roll Along that, that didn't get to run as long. And uh, I love the Kate Man uh, score that um, uh, you know I think ran for a couple of months. Okay, man, that was the, that was the Paul, yeah, Paul Paul Simon. Simon. Yeah, I mean that music is just beautiful. I just, I just, I I, I bought a ticket very fast to that show because I was so in awe of the of the work he did. So, um, I guess those are a couple that I like and and High Fidelity is at the top of my list obviously (laughs) (laughs)
0: obviously so you working on anything else coming up
5: yes uh, I have a show called Feeling Electric that is in development right now with uh, Second Stage we're hoping that uh, there'll be a production soon Uh, that's something that I uh, have been working on for some time and we were at uh, the New York Musical Theater Festival last
0: fall Um, so it's thrilled going to get to keep working on that show Good to talk to you, Tom, and best of luck with the soundtrack and your other shows. And I have a feeling the show's gonna find a life out there in kind of the regional theater market as well. So. Thank you. I hope so. Thank you for saying so. Oh,
1: Laura, Laura, you'll be missed. But sweet, sweet Laura, yeah.
0: Uh, this is uh, Behind the Scenes at the High Fidelity Recording. I'm talking with somebody named Will Chase. I don't know. I, I don't heard know. you're in the chorus of the show. I'm in the ensemble
6: of the show. I do one line in the show. No. <laughs> I do the swearing. I do all the swearing. Yeah.
0: Now, I imagine you're being kept a little bit busier than some others backstage here.
6: Uh, yeah, a little bit. Uh, I, I came a couple hours ago and we did uh, did a couple things live and then you know, a couple things we do with uh, the band playing tracks and stuff like that. Yeah, but I've got a long night ahead of me, too. How many cast albums have you done before? Mm, this one. This is your first this cast. This is the only one. They've yeah. done a lot of other things,
0: so this yeah. is your first original cast, though.
6: Yeah. Uh, well, Lennon was the first original cast, but they decided not to record that. I don't know um. why, but because that was a, that was a kick-ass yeah. cast. But uh, yeah, this is my first one. So you enjoying the experience? Oh, my God. It's incredible. It's great to hear the music again. You know, for us, who, who have, we've been away from the show, obviously, because uh, it closed. But it's nice to get back and listen to the music and remember how great it was. Now, where are you from originally? With oh, originally Kentucky. Oh, you can hear that? Oh, okay, good. <laughs> and I've not even been drinking. And it's not even that late. Uh, yeah, Kentucky.
0: Yeah. So what's your favorite number in the show?
6: Oh, God. Uh, I guess on stage, it was probably... Uh, nine percent chance the end of act one was just fun when everybody you know uh, robbed it and They're all their their moments are culminating into one big gigantic moment and um and uh, i think that's probably the most joyous most fun
1: if i've got a chance then i've got a chance then i've got a chance
6: Second act for me was always a blast because I really don't I don't stop you know I start the first song and then I'm never ever off stage again and uh, so I always consider the second act one big long number so I guess the second act of the show is uh, is probably my my favorite number my favorite number to listen to and like I just heard the, the orchestration for it again. And all my friends who came to the show said that theirs was the uh, conflict resolution where we do the rewind and we kick in there. Oh, yeah. So uh, that's that was definitely crowd-pleasing.
0: Yeah, it's pretty that's, fun. Is that being recorded here? Is that more oh,
6: of because that's a scene. Oh, no. That's, that's already been recorded and laid down. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, it's definitely going on can see how that comes across in recording because well, it's such so visual. Well, but so much of the show we're learning that – even we're learning doing it uh, now is um, – the narrative, you know that uh, where I where I had the narrative with the audience and had that relationship with the audience, that I can have it with the listener too. So a couple scenes that I would normally be projecting out to the audience, I can you know just uh, talk to the listener in the headphones, which is kind of fun too. Yeah. If you had a favorite number of yours that's been cut uh, from out number. of town, you know. Uh, you know there was a great song at the end of act uh, end of uh, act two. Now it's uh, I'm Sorry, the song I sing by myself. We used to have a great duet called Wonderful Love that Laura and Rob sang. I think they thought it was a little too. Um, we didn't need to hear Laura singing with Rob at that point. It had to be Rob's decision to say, I'm sorry, and then that was it. But it's a wonderful love. It's a great, great duet with John yeah. Okay, well, thanks for taking time sure, to man. talk
0: to Broadway Bullet while you're very busy here. Backstage. Yeah, right on. Right okay. on, man.
1: Have your fun, little child, don't you worry about me. Oh, God, don't leave me crying in the rain. I'm always crying.
0: I'm with Rachel Stern. Gosh. Yep. And what was sure. your role in the show?
7: Uh, I played a character named Liz. I also played a character named Jackie slash Janice, but uh, Liz was my main role in the show.
0: Now, you have a real show-stopping number in I the do, show.
7: I do, I do. I have a nice little show-stopper in the first act called She Goes. Now, have you taped that yet? We just taped it about a half hour ago. As you can tell, my voice is much lower now than it was about an hour ago. Um, yeah, we did it in three takes, baby. One, two, three.
0: So, is this your first cast album you've recorded?
7: It's not actually. I recorded the cast album of Tarzan last year. Um, I was a swing in that show, so I only got to sing on a couple numbers. But I really got to blow out on mic <laughs> on this time. <laughs> this time around, it's pretty great.
0: Has the orchestra already laid down? Or are you singing live with the orchestra? Um,
7: I wish. I wish I was singing live. She goes. Um, but they laid that down earlier today, and they are just smoking on that track. It is such a fun. Fun orchestration They're just blasting It's so much fun
0: Did she go through Any changes at all During writing Um, During the progression Of the show
7: Absolutely Well I was not The original uh, actor For the role so it was originally actually a whole step higher, um, which uh, <laughs> would make a lot of people happy, I'm sure, if they were ever auditioning with that song, because I sing very low. Um, but yeah, it's much lower now, and uh, the dialogue has changed in it, and um, the melody has stayed the same. I mean, I've kind of jazzed it up a little bit, but you know, it's pretty much what Tom Kitt wrote, which is perfection.
0: Well, good talking to you, Rachel, yeah, have you fun do. with the rest of your recording. Thanks
7: so much. Okay. Thanks. Talk to you soon. No offense, but you were lucky to get
8: her. I like you both the same, well her a bit better Your macho act can't hide the fact you adore her Now she's gone like all the others before her Fifteen, twenty, that's a few This shit is old and so are you I relied on your success to direct me. Did you ever once think how this would affect me? I'm a wreck, and what the heck will you do now? Go to scores and tip or strip or two to now. I don't know how it works today, but for you it only works one way. You meet someone, you move in together, she goes. To move it, together, she goes. The girls may change in face and name. I'm talking to you as a friend now Always been your friend now I say that it's not you But why I pretend now I pretend now, you know you shouldn't feel the slightest compunction it's If you suffer from some down below the dysfunction Ooh. It's been really hard on me To so have a little sympathy Mean-hearted, but are you on crack or just retarded? 'Cause I'm the one who made you never a sweet
0: In the green room with Amanda Green, the lyricist for High Fidelity. How are you doing?
9: I'm doing great, thank you. I'm
0: so this, excited to be here. It's kind of a crazy day for you, I imagine, huh?
9: Absolutely, absolutely. I'm so glad we're uh, recording this record and it's so great to see everybody. So, I'm having a great time.
0: So, has anybody flubbed a lyric yet?
9: You know, I'm, I'm on them. They know. <laughs> they know. I, I have a big carry a whip. So, no, no, no flubbed lyrics yet. <laughs> they've, they've been great, they've been amazing.
0: So, is this your first time recording a cast album or?
9: Yeah. I mean I think you know, I've done them before but it's usually like, you know, in our friends, you know
0: So on the scale Garage
9: on the- <laughs> Band was still my last uh, thing. So yes, on this scale, definitely. So definitely. what do
0: you think of the experience so far?
9: Uh it's fantastic. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, I mean some people don't behave. But no, it's great. And and they've uh, we did you know, we recorded a demo before we did the show, but they they feel so comfortable doing it and they know their parts and their characters so well that it's a snap. That's great hearing songs again. So I'm having a great time. What is
0: it like following in this in this business with such a legacy?
9: Uh you know, I uh do, doing it is is so much better than thinking about it. I mean, it's once you're doing it, you know, if you, if I thought about it too much, I think I don't think I'd be able to do it because it's could be very intimidating, but I think uh, I grew up watching them do it and it's uh I, it's just so much fun to be doing it myself, you know. Yeah, so
0: I think it's like you're definitely blending a lot of the classical influenced styles lyrically and still bringing a fresh sound to the stage. I was appreciative of I think he did a good job combining the intellect as well as a lot of modern euphemism. Oh,
9: I appreciate. It. Well, I, I have such respect for his and Betty's work, and it just made me laugh. And I always think it, it was it still holds up, I mean it not still holds up. But it wasn't that long ago, but it's it is con- it's contemporary for their time, but it still doesn't feel dated. And I wanted to do that with this, you know, with the present day.
0: So, what was your favorite lyric that was cut out of town?
9: Oh, we cut, you know, we cut about 25 songs, literally. Uh, so, I think we had a song called Let Me Touch Your Breast, which I was sorry to see go. Uh, and a song called I'm Too Tired Not to Be With You, uh, which I was also sorry to see go. So
0: now, I two. heard a rumor is it true that they're going to they're record a couple of the cut songs
9: I, I we're hoping to uh, be able to record I'm Too Tired Not To Be With You because uh, Jen Colella sings it amazingly well and it would be great to have it on record all right well it thanks my pleasure yes.
2: is this the way life's always gonna be well if that's the case I think you'd better sleep with me I'm too tired not to be with you I'm too sad I feel too bad And I can't deal with anyone new
0: I'm here speaking with John Patrick Walker Back behind the scenes of recording the soundtrack for High Fidelity How are you doing? I'm very well, how are you? Good. And your main <laughs> character in the show is a, is an acronym that I'm probably going to say wrong So I'll ask you to say it uh, Yeah, it's uh, TMPMITW
10: The Most Pathetic Man in the World uh, the the guys in the record store uh, never bothered to find out what his name was and so that's how they that's how they referred to him. Um, and then I also played uh, Bruce Springsteen. It was a great pairing to get to play sort of a rock star and then literally the most pathetic man in the world. It was kind of a fun uh, combo for, now, for me. Now, what's the deal?
0: You don't seem that pathetic.
10: I don't know. You know, originally in Boston I had a different character altogether. I was playing a guy named Johnny the Drunk who was this character that came into the record store and was constantly getting tossed out on his ear and... Uh, they just decided that ultimately the sort of drunk joke was fairly limited and sort of cliched and in a way sort of old-fashioned almost you know sort of like a stock character from the 50s sort of like the the the, the funny drunk you know <laughs> and so they decided to to tr- go with, with this other guy this uh tmp and uh, and they threw it at me on a sunday night they gave me the the, the new pages and then Tuesday we put the new character in. So literally on my day off on Monday up in Boston, <laughs> I made up a character, and and uh, so it was, it was a challenge, but it was a lot of fun. Now, what's it like channeling the boss on stage? That was a, a great, uh, great treat for me. It was, you know, I'm a big Springsteen fan and rock and roll fan, and uh, it was it was great. I got to, you know got to watch lots of footage of him, and um, yeah, it was sort of a fantasy come true. You know, all the hours I spent as a you know 15 year old air guitaring in my mirror and pretending to be a rock star. This is sort of, you know, <laughs> as close as I can Now, could have you cut tonight. the number yet? No, not yet. We're going to do it, I guess, kind of late tonight. Well John Patrick Walker, thanks hey, for talking. my pleasure. Thanks.
1: Say goodbye and good luck to your top five breakups and move on down the road. Say what? Say goodbye and good luck to your top five breakups and move on down the road. Allison who ditched me after three days in the park. Call! Penny who wouldn't
6: let me feel her up then had sex with that bastard Clark. Call.
0: Now we're back in the green room area speaking with Jen Colella. Hello! How are you doing, Jen?
2: I'm very well.
0: And you play Laura in yes. the show. Yes, I do. So um, how crazy experience cutting everything in a
11: day?
2: It's nuts. It's absolutely insane. It's been like a reunion and uh, and work all at once. So we're having a good time, but it, it's doing it with the band is a little extra pressure. And I found after a couple of weeks that I've forgotten some of the songs. Forgot how they go. I'm rewriting a couple of them. I was
0: asked, just asking Amanda <laughs> Green if anybody had yeah. missed any of her lyrics. <laughs> I, I,
2: I'm rewriting some of the melodies, um, but I I'm remembering them now.
0: So what's your favorite song from the show?
2: Oh man, there there are a lot of good ones um, I enjoy I slept with someone who handled Kurt Cobain's intervention that's a fun one I, yay!
0: good luck with everything
2: thank you so much he slathers me in oils and massages me for hours and hours and hours he's caring and supportive and gives me his full attention I slept with someone Who handled a dead rock star's intervention
0: Right now I'm actually in the noisy green room with everybody who's backstage working on the soundtrack. Yeah! Yeah. Yeah. Is everybody having fun recording the cast album? Yeah! Yeah. If any of you have, can think of your favorite musicals that didn't run for very long, but are still really great shows.
7: Chess, uh, chess, yes. Chess. That's a good. One. Chess was in the Imperial. Urban You're Cowboys? Nice. Urban yeah. Cowboys. Yeah. Yeah. Urban,
0: <laughs> Urban <laughs> Cowboy. What
7: are you laughing yeah. at? Why are you laughing? <loving? laughs> Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: Phantom of
0: the Opera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Phantom of the Opera hasn't run very long at all. It's, it's a shame. It's,
1: it's a shame. Of
0: course. <laughs> 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 all right. Well, have fun everybody, with the rest of the recording.
9: Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You.
0: Have fun buying the soundtrack. Jay Kleitz and Christian Anderson. Yeah. How are you guys doing? Yeah. All right. Yeah, thank you. Who are now, Christian, what was the name of your character in the show? Um, it
12: was... Um, uh, Dick! No, I know. I was trying to think of my joke I was going to use. use. What was I, What was I, I going to say? Dick? <laughs> no, no. Oh, I, hi. I'm Christian Anderson, and I'm p- playing Ben Brantley in the show. I, I, I mean, Dick. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. Yeah.
1: I no, forgot for about
0: that. You have like be- this kind of recurring song that your character just suddenly breaks into. Yeah, and- Dick
12: sings no problem. He he's, he's ready to appease everybody, especially Rob. He wants to do whatever Rob wants him to do because he's a he's a pleaser. Yeah. Now, when I saw the show, I got quite a response from the audience. Why do you think that is? Well, it's a sweet song, but it's also kind of like a stuttering kind of song, you know? he's this He, he says, just listen to me, stutter. Yeah. Um, he says something, you think he's finished, and then he goes again and says a little bit more. And then you think he's done, and then he says a little bit more. So, uh, I don't know, it's funny, and it has, like, Dick is very soft-spoken, but then it has this big, huge, loud build... Yeah, that's funny. It's, it's, it's a contrast. My schedule's pretty open, so I've got some time today. Plus, I've got some other stuff to tell him anyway. So I'll tell him when I tell him all the other stuff. Or I can't even call. So it's no problem. No problem at all. All right, Dick. It's no problem. I'll see him later at a game. I'll probably start with your news first cuz my
0: is isn't big. And Jay, you get what is kind of a unusual for a supporting actor in a show, you get to close the show with a yeah. big uh, big number. Yeah. So uh, how did that how did that arise? It's a fun number. I'm, I think it's great. It ends the show at a real high note. Yeah, yeah. Um, I
6: think, you know, that was just the way it was always it was in the script. I mean, it was an honor to be able to do that. It was an incredible song and it was a hell of a lot of fun to sing, you know. It was uh you know, the, the script, uh, I think it said, uh, Barry starts to sing like um, Barry White, Al Green, and Marvin Gaye all rolled up into one or something like that. So, I mean, uh, th- that's obviously a very fun thing to do. It's great Were you a song. fan
0: of the movie The Commitments? Yeah, of, cu- uh, yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. I get that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Got very much that vibe. Like yeah, yeah, absolutely. A, a fun number, and uh, so we will probably hear a snippet from that right now. Great. Have you recorded it yet? Uh, no, not yet, but I'm excited to get in there and rock out. All right. Well, thanks for taking a moment to
12: talk with uh, Roderick Bullet. My pleasure. Thank you.
1: And turn you on, baby. I just want to turn the world. A different brand of happiness Than they're selling on TV You won't even need the clothes that you're in For the vacation we're about to begin Oh honey let's go traveling And visit every inch of your skin Oh, I just wanna turn the world Let's turn the world off, baby. I want to turn you off.
2: I made a list of all your faults. It was quite detailed and lengthy, too. And when I read it through I missed you You're like a classic eagle song You just can't help but sing along Even though it sometimes gets annoying too I just know
0: And thanks to Shikaboom Records and Ghostlight for the invitation backstage. It was a lot of fun. You can find out more at shikaboom.com. You can find the CD at Amazon and iTunes. The Call Board. All right, I got a couple announcements for you. On Sunday, June 3rd at 7 p.m., The Transport Group will host an evening with Tommy Toon, featuring a conversation with the Tony Award winning legendary director slash choreographer and Jack Cummings III, The Transport Group's artistic director. For more information, visit thetransportgroup.com. Also, on Sunday, June 3rd from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the Westin Hotel in Times Square, BroadwayWorld.com will be co-sponsoring the Entertainment Industry Expo. EIE is the ultimate networking opportunity for anyone in or affiliated with the entertainment industry. Attendees will get a chance to land that next gig, and they can learn about new state-of-the-art products and services to advance their careers in the entertainment industry. EIE offers actual casting calls, model and talent searches, and industry workshop seminars with a Trade Expo. Attendees of EIE include a wide range of goal-oriented and enthusiastic professionals from theater, film, television, music, and live production. And I don't have the notes here, but I've seen this. I believe this is free, too, which is always important. Uh, It's free. You just got to show up. Okay, the 2007 edition of Stars in the Alley will take place in Schubert Alley on June 6th at 11 a.m. Stars in the Alley features performances and special appearances by cast members from Broadway's most popular musicals and plays, including Tony Award winners and nominees. This year, for the first time ever, Broadway fans are invited to vote online for their favorite play and musical and enter to win a Night on Broadway prize package. Max Crum and Laura Osnes were voted the favorite Danny and Sandy by America and will star in the new production of Grease. We'll announce the winners. All right, we've been having a few new people sign up to become registered users at BroadwayBullet.com, and I really urge you to get signed up fast, because that's the only way you hear about our contests and giveaways. And a little birdie tells me we might be giving away some pairs of tickets to Don't Quit Your Night Job and uh, a few CDs of the High Fidelity soundtrack. So if you aren't signed up, you're not going to hear about it. All right, that was it for the call board. Back to some interviews.
2: On the boards.
0: Brits Off Broadway has been bringing many productions to 59 East 59th Street Theater the past few weeks, and we're talking with Christian McKay in the studio about his one man production of. Rosebud, in which he plays a rose growing out of it the... now. <laughs> no, you are playing Orson Welles, I take it. I'm playing Orson Welles, yes. And uh, it doesn't look like a big stretch looking at you. You look like a, a young Orson Welles. Well, I,
13: I think we both eat too much. Uh, that's, that's where we start. And, um, yeah, uh, it's amazing. because um, my, my company, Atomic 80, who produces Rosebud, we've been getting, over the last couple of years, quite a few emails from all over America. And it is amazing how many people are cursed with having an uncanny likeness to Orson Welles. It seems every other American actor looks like him and wants to do the show, so it, it, which is very flattering. But um, uh, the show was written for me, and so here I am. And it, it, it's wonderful, absolutely wonderful, to bring Orson, you know, home,
0: in a sense. Well, I guess, first off, you said it, it was written for you. So how did that all come about, that, that you get a show written for you to play Orson Welles? Uh, through a lot of cheek, I think. Um,
13: at the time I was... Uh, uh, playing a eunuch at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Antony and Cleopatra, which was a very humble beginning. And um, my friend and and then director, Josh Richards, uh, who had played a very famous one, one-man show written by Mark Jenkins, who also wrote Rosebud, called Playing Burton, and he did a charity performance in Stratford-upon-Avon, which I was lucky enough to see. And it remains one of the greatest theatrical performances I've ever seen. Josh doesn't particularly look like Richard Burton. He doesn't sound like Richard Burton. But suddenly on the stage, he became Richard Burton, which was absolutely fascinating. So afterwards, with a lot of his Welsh friends, and the Welsh, you know, are very famous for partying, and we were singing Welsh songs and all the rest of it, Um, (laughs) it was a, a night that Richard Burton would have really enjoyed. I probably had a few glasses of wine, so I went up to Josh and I said, you know, I would like to do that. I would like to play Richard Burton on stage and all this. And he said, well, you cheeky young thing. um, How's about Orson Welles? And I'm afraid my immediate reaction was I'm not that fat. (laughs) Because I remember from my childhood, Orson, you know, looking into camera very earnestly and selling wine before its time and things like that and sherry adverts and you name it. But the old man, this grand seigneur, uh, sitting there, selling all kinds of dubious whiskies and you name it, dog food. Um, I, I didn't really know the younger Wells, so. so he introduced me to Mark Jenkins, and um, we, Mark was very reluctant. He didn't really want to write the play because he'd had a famous one-man show. He didn't really want to, you know, write another one and
0: perhaps ha- have thing. a disaster. <laughs> yes, <laughs> or that becomes his thing. He's yes. the guy that writes one-person shows. Exactly, uh,
13: but uh, thankfully he did. And um, Rosebud uh, premiered at Edinburgh, at the Edinburgh International Festival in 2004. And uh, it was a a fairy tale. We won two major awards. And uh, we got uh, wonderful uh, reviews from the critics. Um, And it's gone from there. I've been touring. And then I put him away in the suitcase, you know, put him down in the shed for for about 12 months and went off to do other things, playing uh, Shostakovich in a play. Because my first career... Is as a musician. I trained as a musician. So uh, it was lovely to get back to music and play some concerts, that sort of thing. And then, you know, he was knocking on the suitcase door, let me out. And uh, so we, we kind of took him back on the road and especially with the opportunity of uh, bringing the old man home. So here we are in New York City. And now when I'm talking about, you know, the Mercury Theater and Seventh Avenue and things like that, you know, I'm just it's just outside the theater. It's fantastic. So, now you mentioned you tour with this as well. So how many places have you been to this besides New York? Well, I toured all over the U.K. and Ireland with it. And um, I went to the Flying Solo Festival in Toronto, Canada. I've been to New York previously. One of the awards we won in Edinburgh was the Best of Edinburgh Award. And so that enabled us to play five showcase performances at the Michael Schimmel Center for the Arts, which was very exciting. That was just after Edinburgh. And then we we did a a, a substantial U.K. tour. Um, And we've had inquiries from all over the world, from Vienna, for example, where The Third Man was filmed. So I'd love to take it there. And, um, you know, South Africa, Australia, Hong Kong. And and so there's a lot of places I'd love to take it before he goes back in the suitcase once more and I get on with other
0: things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I understand that although this was written for you, you actually did. A large part of the research. Yes, I did. So what were some of the most interesting things that you dug up about Orson Welles that you don't think many people know?
13: Well, I became a kind of like Orson Welles Anorak. I really did. And, And the wonderful thing about any artist is how you divide the truth from the legend. And Orson, what he loved to do was create legends about himself. For example, that he was great friends with Houdini as a child. And Houdini taught him magic tricks. And he was on holiday with uh, some friends in Austria Austria, in about 1933. And, of course, he's in a, a, a beer keller and sat next to a man with a little mustache. Of course it had to be, you know, <laughs> Herr Hitler, uh, there, just because Orson was there. And, uh, you know, he, he would go as a teenager to the uh, bull rings in Spain, in south of Spain. And instead of watching, like we all would, perhaps, if you like that sort of thing, which I don't, Um, but, you know, at that time, everybody, the whole town, the whole village went to see the the bullfights. Of course, Orson wasn't content with watching. He got in the ring. I can't imagine a young man with flat feet being an even match for a bull. So I think that's another legend, you know. But what I wanted to do in the play, uh, what Mark and I uh, tried to do, was tell the truth about the man because I think there's a prevailing perception of Orson Welles, especially in America, that is not shared in Europe. In Europe, and especially in France, he, his foibles and his inconsistency is, is very often forgiven for the body of work that he left. Whereas, you know, several people who, you know, who have come up to me because I'm playing a show at the moment at, at, at 59 East 59 called Memory about the Holocaust. And afterwards, of course, they come out crying, saying, you know, how moved they've been by this theatrical experience. And, of course, after, you know, th- th- they've enjoyed it very much. And then I say, yes, now Orson Welles. I'm doing Orson Welles. And very often they turn around and, and, and say, oh, yes, he got fat. He <laughs> he sold out. He went, you know, he left his film to be butchered. And he went off to South America like he was going on some kind of holiday. And And so I'm there trying not to, you know, and I just wanted to say, you know, come and see the show because I think there it's a little deeper than that. You know, there's there's a lot of things that happen to him. Uh, governments and taking on powerful people with Citizen Kane and things like that. And to see the system turn against this great artist. Um, it's a, it's quite amazing.
0: Now, it's definitely interesting and the one-man shows can be done in a variety of different ways. And I'm curious as to exactly what kind of theatrical mode you tell this story in. Do you stay Orson Welles the whole time, or do you step out into yourself and back and forth? Or?
13: No, I, I, I play Orson from about the age of 25 through to 70. And it's, uh, he, he lived his life on kind of on Shakespearean archetypes. For example, when, when you think that by the age of 25, he'd revolutionized theater in America with the Mercury Theater, uh, even before that, as a 19-year-old, he'd played Voodoo Macbeth in Harlem, and the cops were blocking, you know, blocking off the roads. People were fighting for, for I think 50-cent tickets it was. And he tells a beautiful story about the, you know, the, the actors he was working he was working with as part of, as part of the New Deal. They didn't even know Shakespeare; they'd certainly never spoken Shakespeare before. And this 19-year-old gave them the magic of Shakespeare, and it was a very, very beautiful, famous production. He said it it was one of the most wonderful things that ever happened to him, because instead of the curtain coming down and them taking the bow, they just left the curtain open and the audience came onto the stage to congratulate the actors. So then, of course, he went on to radio. He revolutionized radio. Um, I'm very lucky, because when I was playing the show in London, um, I had this wonderful lady Outside, I was getting changed and I had this wonderful lady saying, oh, he won't want to meet me. No, don't bother him and all this. So I ran out and there was this lovely lady, Madeline Guilford, one of your great actors. And we were talking. She said, thank you for bringing my old friend back to life. So I, that was the best compliment I've ever, better than any critics or anything, you know. And I said, well, you, you knew him? She said, yeah, yeah, he gave me my first job. So I said, and what was that? She said, in, in The War of the World, that was her first job. She was there on that fateful night. And then, of course, he went to Hollywood. And, you know, after a a few false starts, looking for the right uh, material, he produces Citizen Kane, which is still regarded as the greatest film ever made by the critics. Uh, All over the world, it's quite an achievement. And, of course, he then said, well, I started at the top and I've (laughs) been working my way down ever since. And uh, so it's that. He, he, He started off as, let's say, Prince Hal, Henry V, and he ended up as Falstaff. But he always said that Falstaff, and for me, I, I, my favorite film that Dawson ever made was Chimes at Midnight, his, his um, uh, portrayal of Falstaff. I think it's absolutely wonderful and very human. And whereas I disagree with Orson about it, he said he was the one good man in Shakespeare which I I disagree with, because I I think he was rather mercenary. But obviously, Orson saw something in him. And I think when you're uh, looking for money for movies, it's very easy to become mercenary, you know, when you're desperate to complete a work of art. He always said, you know, that if he'd have been an artist, he could have gone and worked in a grocery store and earned the money for paints and uh, brushes and easels, that sort of thing, canvases. But because he worked in film he had to go and sell himself you know it wasn't selling his soul necessarily it was selling a product i mean toulouse lautrec picasso they produced posters you know so i don't know whether it's a whether it's happens here in america but certainly in england there was a kind of snobbery about a great actor you know uh, uh producing commercials and doing commercials.
0: That's been a big problem until just probably the past decade. Yes, it's yeah, it
13: acceptable for big names to do this. Absolutely. I mean, Lawrence Olivier used to come to America to earn a fortune selling cigarettes and all the rest <laughs> of it. But he would never do it back in England. It's, it's extraordinary. Uh, whereas Orson earned a lot of money. And the wonderful thing, and I think where he's a man of obstinate integrity is the fact that he took that money and he put it into his films and into his projects. And thank goodness, as a result, we have a beautiful body of work that will you know, last millennium, hopefully. You know. Now, this is running from May 29th until when? May 29th until June 10th. It's quite a short run, really. I could stay in the city yeah. doing it you know, <laughs> for months and months. But you know, it's, just, it's just two weeks. It's at 59 East 59 Street Theatres as part of the Brits Off Broadway Festival. And I think it's 8.30 in the evening.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Christian. And I hope you get a chance to tour the U.S. so that even more of our listeners can catch the show. Thanks very much,
13: Michael. Thank you for having me.
8: On the Positive Side.
11: Hey, this is Marty Cooper once again on the Positive Side. I want to thank everybody for their kind words. Uh, I got some of your emails Uh, A few weeks ago, I hadn't noticed it for a couple of weeks because I was away. I heard from a gentleman, Regis Spangler, who wanted me to talk about Evita. Evita actually is one of my favorite musicals. Uh, I think it's the, by far and away, the best thing that uh, Mr. Webber ever wrote. Way back in 1976, uh, I picked up one of these double MCA cassette tapes, a concept written by the guys who wrote Jesus Christ Superstar, based on that monster from Argentina called Eva Perón. Actually, when I went to school, we were... She was called a monster, you know, so I couldn't believe they were actually doing this. Uh, uh, the recordings starred a young lady named Julie Covington, Paul Jones, who was at one time the lead singer of Manfred Mann. He played uh, Juan Perón. And one C.T. Wilkinson was Che Guevara on the recording. First of all, I wondered at the time how they got Che Guevara into the story, but uh, uh, I suppose it's some kind of poetic license that, that they used. I, it was, turned out to be a pretty good idea. Uh, it works in the show. Uh, of course, you may recognize C.T. Wilkinson as uh, later being the star of Les Miserables. Well, anyway, anyway I picked up this recording, and uh, I put it on my player, and uh, I was immediately taken by it. Hearing the scene at the, in the cinema at the beginning and uh, hearing about her life, hearing these, some of these wonderful songs, Walls for Evita and Shea and uh, uh, Don't Cry for Me Argentina, Rainbow High, too much to mention, I think. And I noticed one thing later in seeing the musical, it, it always struck me funny, that uh, every time I see the show or I see the movie with Madonna or the death scene at the end always kind of brings a tear to my eye. It's, it's, it's a surprising thing because I suppose human beings are all kind of brought together when they see somebody dying and you don't, you're don't you not concerned who it is. You just know a human being is dying and it, it kind of gets to you. Well, uh, a few years later, uh, I picked up the English cast uh, and uh, the English cast recording and for the first time I was introduced to a young lady named Delaine Page. Uh, I found her most enchanting, and then when I saw, I saw Miss Lapone in the Broadway production, I was incredibly excited about going to the one of the first performances of Evita on Broadway, and it kind of paid me back because uh, I was in love with it. I don't think Harold Prince has done much better in his career. I was most taken by What's New Brother Cyrus, watching the dazzling choreography by Larry Fuller, I think that was his name. And surprisingly, he did some of the movements for Sweeney Todd. So it was quite a year for Harold Prince that year. He had Sweeney Todd in one theater, and he had Evita in the other. Both in- incredibly entertaining shows. On the opposite side of the spectrum, totally. I love them both. Well, in any case, I had the pleasure of seeing uh, a revival in London last year with an Argentinian girl, Elena Roger, playing Evita. She was great. I think she's about four foot eight or something like that. Very small, huge voice. Uh, And uh, I enjoyed seeing Philip Costas as uh, Juan Peron. And a guy named Matt Rawl played Che. I found this production wonderful, although not quite as well staged as the original Broadway. I mean, when you think about it, uh, in the original Broadway he used devices like having her bedroom door being a revolving door and the picking of the president of Argentina as a musical chairs number. Incredibly original. I love the movie also. So I, I kind of love everything about Evita. And uh, so I took this time to talk about it. I hope Mr. Spangler made you happy. Once again, uh, if you... Enjoy my segment. Actually, even if you don't enjoy my segment and you want to write uh, criticism, uh, you can reach me at Marty at AOL.com. I take any suggestions, as you've heard tonight. Once again, it's Marty Cooper, and stay on the positive side.
0: On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony. Online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway, you can always say, I found it at The Colony.
2: On the boards.
0: Facing East is the first off-Broadway transfer from a show originating in Utah. And we have the director, uh, Jerry Rapier, and the playwright, Carolyn Pearson, here with us to discuss this exciting event. So how are you guys doing? Great. Great, thank you. <laughs> what What's Facing East
14: about? It is about an upstanding uh, Mormon couple who are forced to deal with... Um, the suicide of their gay son, and uh, the play takes place at his gravesite, where they also encounter his his partner for the first time. Now, are the two of you Mormon?
15: I am still Mormon. I am active in the church and known as a maverick and a renegade.
14: And I uh, grew up Mormon, um, but for for me it it wasn't a comfortable fit, and so I left the church about ten years ago. The fact that this deals with homosexuality and the Mormon family
0: in a very different ways this is. Quite a, I imagine, quite a controversial play out of Utah.
14: You know that, that it's generally what people have asked. Um, first off, is well, one, how Carolyn gets away with it. <laughs> uh, um, but really, strangely, um, people expected a lot of controversy, and it was uh, we we had two sold out runs in Salt Lake City, uh, which was part of the impetus for us bringing it to New York. Um, but the reception was surprisingly the opposite. Very conservative people that we didn't expect to embrace it really, really embraced the play and the, the thought-provoking nature of it.
15: The negative response has been minimal. Our audiences have been hugely enthusiastic. The press has been very, very uh, enthusiastic. We we got the uh, award for best drama of the year from the L. Church-owned Deseret Morning News, which was a, a wonderful thing. I believe that most thinking Mormon people, and there are a lot of very good thinking Mormon people, understand that this is one of the issues that needs to be addressed. And I think a lot of people were were very grateful to have this put out in front of us in, in a way that is uh, demanding and thought-provoking, but not just under attack. It looks at the issues in a compassionate way.
0: And as I understand it, in the Mormon community, it's not It's not a sin to be gay. It's a sin to act on it. That that
15: is currently the the, the position, yes.
0: And how do you feel about that position?
15: I feel that we are not yet where we need to be in that. I feel that we need to be able to honor the decisions that our homosexual brothers and sisters make around this issue for themselves and and support them in, in living a life that is honorable and for those who wish to still participate in the church to to be able to, to do so with respect.
14: I think one of the things that people have a difficulty understanding about Mormon culture is that it is a culture. It's not just a faith. It's just not something you do on Sunday. It is intended to be and structured to be your entire lifestyle. And so when something isn't acceptable, such as being gay, in that culture, it it puts people in, in a very um, difficult position and actually having to choose uh, to change everything about their life to be true to themselves if they happen to be gay. And so it's a lot of people are really surprised that it's so... This becomes a truly life and death situation for gay Mormons, but it really – the culture makes it so that they feel that that's the only choice they have. And so a lot of people really look to Carolyn, uh, a lot of gay Mormon men, as uh, having kind of opened the door for the possibility of – finding a way to if not reconcile those two at least find a way to not let go fully of either one
15: just a quick note here i was married for 12 years to a mormon gay man and that's how life invited me into this subject and after the 12 years of a mormon temple marriage and four children and then our anguish both of us to realize that um his orientation had not changed we divorced and remained good friends and he passed away Uh, six years later of AIDS, and that was in my home where I was caring for him, which I, I wrote Goodbye, I Love You, a book that kind of sprung open the conversation in our community and in a lot of places around this issue. And that's how I was invited into the subject, and I've continued to be there with strong interest and strong friendship for large numbers of especially Mormon gay people and their families who don't have a lot of places to go to speak frankly about all this. And to know that Utah has the highest suicide rate in the nation for young men 15 to 24 is so outrageous. And so my my outrage around that and and my love for my Mormon community and my love for my um, gay and lesbian friends brought me the, the inner opportunity of conceiving this play And then, of course, the wonderful opportunity of working with Jerry and Plan B.
14: One thing that's really fascinating about this play and the impact it has, and we were uh, initially concerned that it might be too specifically Mormon to be universal, um, but we've had, uh, especially the second run that we just closed on May 6th in, in Salt Lake City, we were really focused on getting feedback from people who were not Mormon. And it's been overwhelmingly so that the specificity of the play has made it possible for people from other religious backgrounds to place themselves in the play. Um, Catholic folks, Jewish folks um, have really made that clear to us that they see their own family dynamic. And even people who are not necessarily directed, directly connected to any gay or issues still see themselves in this dynamic of a play about uh, parents trying to come to some sort of understanding of how their child was different than they tried to shape him or expected him to be which I think is something just about anyone can identify with on some level. I think the interesting dichotomy for me knowing a lot of Mormons that I've never
0: quite understood, you know, I know I, I actually also personally know a lot of Mormon people who struggled with their sexuality, um, and I know a lot of Mormon families from the thing. It seems so odd. Like, out of most Mormons I know, while there are some things about the religion I disagree with, I, I think the, the core of them is the family, and they seem so nurturing, and most of the Mormons I know have been... <laughs> like light years nicer than a lot of other that it's hard true. to it's hard That's to true. imagine I grasp a lot of my other friends who've had problems yeah. as, they've, as they've come out the Mormons I'm more confused about I'm like why are you why is this an issue you have a family who loves you they're going you know, wow, yeah. uh, so, to probably wow you're get so you're so
15: right the, it, for, for the truly 100% orthodox Mormon who believes fully that family is all and that we will be with our families in the next world forever and ever if, if we all are on the same page of doing all of the things, uh, keeping all of the commandments, uh, keeping all of us just moving forward in the same direction. But to, when one person steps out of line, that really brings immediate terror into a fully believing family, because that suggests that this person whom they love dearly is going to be lost. And and I can hardly think of any conflict greater than the truly believing Latter-day Saint, homosexual, especially man, on, on whom the pressure is so great and who has tried everything um fasting prayer reparative therapy all of the things that he has been promised would be what would would heal him and then to find that that does not happen he is in a place of anguish that i can really hardly even begin to fathom and for many of them the the despair is so huge that the only way out they can see is to destroy themselves and and that is so outrageous it it it, it is beyond beyond, to me, anything that is acceptable. And, and so I, I'm so thrilled that I have my little tiny place in, in helping to bring a better light to that.
14: I think it is that it is that pressure of family that is where the terror comes from because it is a very patriarchal faith. It's very traditionally expected that Mormons are known for, as Catholics for having large numbers of children. And the idea of the ultimate importance of family and having a large family and perpetuating this idea of family. And if if you're gay, you're not necessarily going to have a family in the same manner. And so the, there's that additional pressure of disappointing your generations of family, those that have come before you, continuing the family name. And also, it's hard to find your place in that dynamic if you're not offering what's expected. And I'm speaking from personal experience that the most difficult thing for my own parents when not me leaving the church, but the idea that I may not have children to carry on the name. And therefore ensure that what uh, Mormon folk refer to as the eternal family, Continuing with me, like I'm not, I'm not inputting any anything at this point into that family, and it's really difficult for my my parents to to accept that and understand that. And I think there's a lot of gay men that are in that same situation. It's a very unique pressure. Not that not that Mormon men are the only ones to feel that pressure, but it's it's very um, palpable within the faith.
15: But just being single is not the huge thing. That this is sort of. Maybe the, the, the last abomination that we have to deal with, homosexuality, according to strict religious biblical interpretation, is an abomination. And, and that is what gets in the way of being able to look at one another as human beings and, and revisit Scripture and say, look, we, we already pick and choose out of the Bible what we want to take with us. Why don't we just pick love for a change? That, that's that's my hope of, of what we contribute here.
0: Fantastic, yes. Switching gears on that a little bit, just on a technical angle, what is, has what is the process been like uh,
14: logistically for your transfer? I'll sleep at some point. <laughs> but as I'm the producer of the show as well, it's just been kind of, it, it, it's been a very exciting thing to to work on. But also, I'm terrified I've left something undone. Our funder, a lov- lovely man named Bruce Bastian, who has a long history um, with Carolyn, his story of coming out and, and accepting who he was, is very much connected with Carolyn's own life and their families' cross, and uh, he was generous enough to fund the original production in Salt Lake, which at that point, that was our only intention was to produce the play in Salt Lake City, and he leaned over to Carolyn at the final preview and said to her, this is the best money I've ever spent, what do we do now? So... We met with him, and the discussion led to where we are now, and he generously is our angel for this production. It was his impetus that that got us here. And so in some ways, we're very fortunate that we're not stressed out financially about the the production. But um, we got a a waiver from Equity to bring the entire cast. We felt like it's an incredibly Utah story. And these, these three actors that we have, Jay Perry, Jane Luke, and Charles Lynn Frost, all our lifetime, Utahns, and they all bring their own understanding to that culture uh, with them. Charles, who plays uh, the father, Alex, it spent an entire life as a, an upstanding Mormon man, and then with his children and grandchildren, and it came out as a gay man less than ten years ago. Uh, Jane Luke has, who is the former artistic director of Sundance Summer Theater, uh, with Robert Redford, um, she grew up from Pro, in Provo, Utah, which is. Arguably the most conservative town in in the world, <laughs> and uh, her her perspective of the even though she's not LDS any longer, she has this, this amazing respect for these women that are like the role she's playing. And then uh, Jay, who plays Marcus uh, in the show, he is a Catholic boy who grew up in Utah, so he's got and a straight a U- boy and a straight boy, so he's got this Utah perspective, but it's a little bit different than from inside the church, and and not that. Uh, other actors certainly can't play these roles, but there was an immediate shorthand um, that I f- felt was important to keep intact, and I, I feel like the story has a little more power that knowing that it's all from Utah. And as you mentioned earlier, we are the first company to transfer one of our own productions uh, to an off-Broadway run. Uh, there have been other shows that have started in Utah that have been picked up commercially, but it's unique in that way. All right, it's playing at uh, the Atlantic Stage Two. And when? How can people get tickets? Uh, we begin previews on May 25th with official opening on May 29th, and then we run through June 17th. Uh, tickets are available on our website, planbtheater.org backslash facing east, or just through ticketcentral.com, or you can call 212 279
0: all right. Well, I thank you so much for coming down and chatting. As I understand, Jerry, you're actually a regular listener as well.
14: Yes, yes. Love, Broadway Bullet.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, good luck with everything. And
15: Thank you so much. All right top of the trades.
0: Two-time Tony winner Matthew Broderick will star in Manhattan Theatre Club's world premiere production of Kenneth Lonergan's The Starry Messenger as part of the new season at their New York City center space. Lonergan, the Academy Award-nominated author of You Can Count on Me, as well as the celebrated plays Lobby Hero, The Waverly Gallery, and This Is Our Youth will also direct. In a by invitation only ceremony to be held at New World Stages, the 63rd Annual Theatre World Awards will be presented on Tuesday, June 5th to the already announced winners. I guess this is so they have a better chance of the winner showing up to accept them. Um, Yep. Who includes Spring Awakenings' Jonathan Groff, In the Heights' Lin-Manuel Miranda, Mary Poppins' Gavin Lee, and The Color Purple's Fantasia Barrino. First presented in 1945, the prestigious Theatre World Awards are the oldest awards given for Broadway and Off-Broadway debut performances. Da-da-da-dum. This is probably a little bit too far off, so it's maybe more in the rumor category. But a musical adaptation of The Addams Family is headed to Broadway. Elephant Eye Theatrical, the new Broadway development and production company formed by Stuart Oken, Michael Leavitt, and Five Cent Productions will produce the Adams family, a new musical based on characters created by the legendary cartoonist Charles Adams who in a prolific career spanning 6 decades conceived several thousand cartoons, sketches and drawings, many of which were famously published in the New Yorker, but none have appeared on a Broadway stage and I'm going to cross my fingers that none will. The 52nd Annual Drama Desk Awards took place this past Sunday, May 20th. Tom Stoppard's The Coast of Utopia was in a big shocker named Outstanding Play, and Duncan Sheik and Steven Sater's Spring Awakening was named Outstanding Musical. The Utopia Trilogy, which recently ended its run at Lincoln Center, won seven awards, the most of any production of the season, and Spring Awakening took a total of four. For more information, you can find a link to all the winners at broadwaybullet.com. Just click on the Volume 116 show notes to find a link. Top of the Trades is brought to you by BroadwayWorld.com, always the best place for theater news and social gathering. We'll be back next week with more of the top theater news in Top of the Trades. Curtain Call well, Corum Boy has posted its closing notice for May 27th due to uh, underwhelming ticket sales. That's uh, unfortunate. If you are interested in seeing it, do uh, make sure you run out fast. You can get a ticket. Uh, I might encourage it. I have to say that Corum Boy is a very polarizing show with most people tending to fall into a love-it-or-hate-it camp. But i got to tell you, there are definitely a lot of people who really love it. So if you're interested in some really bold uh, theatricality on stage and can forgive uh, kind of mundane, uh, you know, a melodramatic plot get down and catch it before it leaves, because it's quite a sight. Also, really quickly, I'd like to welcome our five brand new interns that are going to help make things real interesting for you, and they'll be blogging on the website at broadwaybullet.com and a whole lot more. We've got John Delamar, Amanda Hutt, Deborah Blumenthal, Brian O'Sullivan, and Katie Marshall. So uh, everybody give them a nice yay welcome, and uh, let's see what they bring to the party over the summer. Also, before we end, I just want to remind everybody, I love hearing feedback, what you liked, what you didn't like, uh, what you'd like to see on the show, anything. So just send uh, send me a note at feedback at BroadwayBullet.com, and I will most definitely uh, enjoy what you have to say, even if it's a uh, criticism. <laughs> All right. Well, this is your host, Michael Gilbo, and until we meet again next week, thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. All well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect, ever. After all I mean, we do it all. Because, you know, we don't,
10: we don't back away from
8: anything.
0: So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere. But most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc., to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act. Even as freshmen, designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments. Even private loans if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to BroadwayBullet.com.
11: I'd love to help you launch your career.